But um, the first thing I want to say, or good morning. Good morning. <laughs> the first thing I want to say before uh, I go anywhere is that, as Christoph has already mentioned, we're looking at the question of why did Jesus come, right? Now, the issue with that statement, as he's already hinted at, and I want to flag it up here now, is um, what we're going to look at today is not specifically the answer to that exact question. It is fundamental to it, don't get me wrong. But there's more to the answer to that question than what we're going to look at today. You see, the simplest way I can answer that question of why did Jesus come is to restore our broken relationship with God. Right? But what we're going to look at today is two things. Right? You ready for this? We're going to look at sin and hell. Yippee! <laughs> I know, yeah. There's been a lot to cover. And uh, the way in which those two topics relate to restoring our broken relationship with God is that sin is the thing that breaks our relationship with God, and hell is the thing that will happen if that relationship is not restored, if it stays broken. So really the question that I'm answering today is not why did Jesus come, it's a paradise. The question I'm answering is, why did he have to come? There's a sin in hell, right? So we, we do have a lot of ground to cover. And uh, now that verse, the verses that Christoph read earlier, is a brilliant place to start this talk, because, first and foremost, Jesus quite clearly says that he has come for sinners. Now, I've heard some people in, in churches uh, who don't like using the word sinners. There was uh, a guy on TV, his name was Robert Schuller, who used to host a program called The Hour of Power, straight from California, USA. Do you remember him now? But he used to say that to call someone a sinner is a sin. He wasn't into it. He believed that this only induced feelings of guilt and shame and that, that inhibited a person's self-esteem. So he stopped, it stopped him from becoming the person that God called him to. But, look, look it's up there, like, it's in here, you know. Jesus ain't got no problem with calling people sinners. Interestingly, though, well, and if, if he does that, that means we can do it as well. But interestingly, though, our daughter, are some in the church who, who would agree with Mr. Schuller, in general, most people don't have a problem with the idea that sin exists. In my experience, people are still happy to deal with categories like sin and evil. But, those things are something that's out there. Sin, if it exists, is something that's not, it's got nothing to do with me. And that's really only about murderers and pedophiles and terrorists. Now, there are questions of scale. That's for sure. I'm not saying that we're all on the same level as, say, a serial killer. There is such a thing as a more serious sin, but we are all sinners. And the idea that we are is kind of preposterous, to be honest with you. And I have to understand, right, I got a little illustration. Um, please consider, if you will, the following scenario. Some of you who have gone to Christian clubs, um, might have come across this illustration before, but I jazzed it up a bit, so it goes here, this all goes, right? Imagine that I'm a filmmaker, right? And uh, <clears throat> I got, I'm a filmmaker, but I got magic powers, okay? 
So I've been granted the power of seeing your every single move and hearing all that you say, and I can see into your head. I can hear what you think. And I decided to make a film of you with some world-class actors. You can choose whoever you want to play yourself. And with the film, wouldn't be just dim, you know, doing everything you do and saying everything you say. I mean, that can throw up some interesting material for sure. But because I could hear into your head, I would put along the bottom of the screen a continual rolling scroll of every one of your thoughts, right? And it doesn't end there. Because not only will we hear what you say, see what you do, and read what you think, but all along the top of the screen, there will be a bar that will continually change in colour. And that will correspond to different kinds of feelings that you're experiencing. And put, don't put into thoughts. You know, you just feel them. So, for example, every time that you're envious, the bar will go green. Every time you're hating on someone, it will go red. Every time you desire something that's not yours, it's blue. And uh, lots of other things like that, but it doesn't end like there either. Because at either side of the screen then there'd be two rows of boxes. And inside of each box there'd be a counter. And every time that you did something that was wrong, that was hard for the rest of us to see, the counter would go up one. So, for example, you might have one box for every time that you appeared to tell the truth, but actually you held back just that little bit of information so as to deliberately mislead the person you were talking to. Or maybe you have another counter specifically counting all the times that you look at a woman other than your wife in a way that either she or the other woman wouldn't appreciate. And of course, needless to say, some counters will probably go a lot quicker than the rest of them. You know? But, well, let's say I give the lads there right, the signal to throw that DVD up on the screen. How long will it take? Before something that qualifies as a sin would appear on the screen. I know you've got good things in your life, don't get me wrong. I know you do good stuff. But answer me this Are you a sinner? Yeah. Now we need to talk about some issues here though, because I know, I didn't know right saying this, that as soon as I start talking about sin, some of you are instantly like, oh, here we go again. Typical evangelicals always banging on about sin. Sin, 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 sin. And we do, that's correct. And of course, some people, you know, they just they don't want to hear that message. The Bible is quite clear that some people have uh, never liked hearing that they're a sinner. But there are some who react against it because they have some misconceptions about what the Bible teaches about sin. The first one I want to talk about is certainly an issue uh, in Northern Ireland. It might be an issue in other places, and it's this. There is a danger of throwing the baby of sin out with the bathwater of narrow conservatism. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that I've met a lot of people here, and this includes people who grew up in the church and those who didn't, whose main interaction with the doctrine of sin has been through Christians who did not demonstrate, either by word or deed, a good understanding of what sin actually is. See, on one hand, Christians can do a lot of talk about sin in connection to being converted. 
with very little about their own struggles with sin. So then, it's mostly talked about in relation to those who have yet to be converted. They are the sinners. And the only times you hear about real struggles in people's lives is when they're talking about their pre-Christian days. So there was a lack of realism, maybe integrity. And then on the other hand, there was an imbalance about the things that were considered sin. So it was quite clear, for instance, that Christians didn't drink, even though the Bible only prohibits drunkenness. They certainly should never sit up in a pub. And lots of things like that, swearing, who you were friends with, who you voted for, and where you went, etc. They were very clear. They were all very clear, sorry. But it was not clear at all about how to, say for example, stop yourself from hating your enemies. There was very little talk about everybody's tendency to be sectarian, or racist, or prejudiced. So you know, there was clarity on certain sins, but then there wasn't even lack of clarity, there wasn't even discussion at all about other areas of sin. I was talking to a lad in, in, uh, in my class here the other day, and uh, he's trained to be minister himself, and he told me that he was in a prayer meeting in one of his congregation, in his congregation, sorry, and one of his congregants stood up and prayed this big long prayer um, that was about a certain evil that was in his tongue, and it wasn't clear until the end of the prayer that the focus of this man's ire, the centre of evil in his tongue was the bingo hall. Now look, gambling can be a problem, don't get me wrong. But we live in a society where there are numerous 30 to 50 foot high walls separating communities because they are afraid that if those walls are not there, they would murder each other. You know? And then there's this attitude of like, well, sure, peacemaking, blessing the community. Sure, that's only for liberals. We're in the business of saving souls. Any attempt to care for the community, all that is only seen as polishing the brass on a sinking ship. That's the attitude. It can be the attitude. And so to bring it all back together again, all this adds up to a situation where one of the main ways in which people have interacted with the doctrine of sin is from people who seem to have a very poor grasp of the scope and the power of it, both within their own lives and within society. And then what happens is the whole thing gets chopped out. I've seen it a lot of times. Talk about sins associated with people who don't really understand life and, and the whole doctrine just gets flung out. They end up thinking that all this sin talk is really only done by people who haven't a clue and in fact are making society worse. So let's forget about talking about that and get out of the real business of changing society. Now, look, not only is that incorrect, but it also goes against what Jesus himself talked about. But also, it's ironic. Because you see, the reality is that a proper understanding of one's own sins actually makes you the kind of person who is better able to produce change in society. How does that work? Well, that leads me to the second misconception. And I want to talk about, and it's this. And I think it's found everywhere, this one. And that is that sin is defined as not doing certain good things or doing bad things. That's, that's what sin is. The actions. But the thing is, you see, sin is, 
is much more than actions that are, that are wrong. Right? So if you want to save up the seconds, uh, one there. That's it. If you, want, you can read it, I'll read it out. Look at this passage here, Mark, right? This is what Jesus says. One of the scribes came up and heard them, heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked them, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the standard is loving God perfectly and loving your neighbor. Now, most people think then that, if, well, if that's the standard, if I hate God or hate my neighbor, then I'm sinning. And that's fair enough. You know, hating God can't go down too well with him, right? And you might go a little further and say, well, if I only half-heartedly love him, then I'd be sinning. And of course, that's true too. But actually, this is it, right? Actually, the way in which we fail to love the God the most is by loving something else. And probably the greatest Christian mind that the church has ever been given is a guy called St. Augustine. You know, he upset a lot of people. Um, he was probably the smartest man we've ever had. And he says that the main problem in our life is that our heart is filled with disordered loves. Right? Augustine's onto something here. Because you see, the number one way in which we sin is through a misuse of good things. Your heart, the very centre of who you are, becomes more enamoured, more in love with created things and things in this life than the Creator. No? Yes? Right? Now, check this how this works. See that, that verse there? He said, this is Jesus again. And he said... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile the person. And that's a list right, of very well-known sins. But look, each one of them is a good thing that's been taught bad. There's nothing wrong with thinking. There's nothing wrong with sex. There's nothing wrong with having things. You're even supposed to get angry when something goes wrong. And there's nothing wrong with relationships, etc., etc. But these can become sources of sin when we make them more important than love of God. These are good things, but they're not God. That's why in the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, nothing can take his place. That's the very essence of sin. It doesn't matter what it is, it could be a great thing. But if it becomes a thing that you go to for comfort in life, for assurance, for purpose, then you're loving it and not loving God. Your love is disordered. It's back to front. Our lives and our loves should be orientated towards God, but instead they're pointed at something else. Now, I remember once um, I had a conversation with a girl at work, and she got angry at me because I told her that I love God more than I love my children. 
And she said, and I don't want to do the accent, but she said, no, your children are supposed to be more important to you. What are you, mad? And I explained to her that if anything becomes more important to you than God, then that thing has to perform the role of God in your life. They become the thing that you go to for comfort. Their performance in life affects how you feel and act. If they're doing good, you're doing good. If they're doing bad, you're doing bad. Right, so listen to this quote. It's from an author called David Foster Wallace. Uh, actually, don't know anything about him. Uh, but he gave a speech at uh, college in 2005 and he said the following words. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And a compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you always you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die and live in debts before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never need, you will need ever more power of others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect or being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid. A fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is, they're unconscious. They're default settings. Now, Mr. Wallace is on to something. I don't know if he was a Christian or not. Uh, but he knows the effects of making anything other than God as a thing you love with all your heart and soul and strength. is that it will eat you. And most of the time, you won't even know it's there. Or maybe you're not so sure, as I'm talking, that you're doing this, right? Here's a tip to diagnose it in yourself. When anything other than God becomes a thing that centers my life centers around, the more I treat them as my God, the more possessive I become about that thing. I simply can't lose it. I've got to have it all the time. And in fact, if I do lose it, I start to despair. If you ever find yourself in deep despair, it's a sure sign that you've lost something that meant more to you than God. Now look, it's perfectly normal to experience sorrow when you lose something, right? Jesus did many times. But sorrow is consolable. Despair is inconsolable. And if you experience sorrow, God can meet you in that. But if despair is where you are, you've lost the thing that made your life worth living. And God doesn't have anything to say to you because that thing was more important to you than God. So God's words are going to scratch the surface or they might mock you. And then to go back to our last problem where some people think that talking about sin is a sign of a diminished life. No, 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 no. The more you center your life around God, the better person you will become. And in fact, the things that you used to center your life around, you'll be better able to love them. So, for example, if changing the world is the thing you put at your center, well, you know, the world is pretty messed up. A lot to do. So invariably the tendency is to get trapped into a cycle of success and defeats 
hope, hopelessness, picking yourself off the floor and getting back on with it, taking time off not to get burnt out. And in fact, I've talked to people, I talked to a guy who worked at the UN in, a, in Gaza recently, and he was talking to me about this, this life, and he said, you know, you just need to set yourself manageable goals. So in other words, you need to, be, to bring the bar down, otherwise you just screw yourself up. But the more that God is the center, the more you'll be able to walk into the storm and stand there at peace. Because your life won't be tied to what's going on around you. You'll be tied to God. So, sin's important. Jesus said, no problem talking about it. Why? Because he knows that we have a serious problem with it. And I haven't even... I haven't even touched on the, the fact that the Bible talks about sin that is something that God can't be near and that he, he deserves his wrath. And I'm not going to go into that today, but that's there as well. But I'm sure you can see by now how this leads on to the idea of hell. Because if sin is anything that takes the place of God, then there's lots of things that we do, things that we don't even know we're doing. No matter how good it feels, how right it seems, it's actually a way of telling God, no. Oh, I'm not going to do This is more, this thing is more important than you. Now imagine you were in a relationship, right? And you told your husband or wife, I love you, but I love the kids more. Or I love you, but I love my job more. Or I love you, but the drink means more to me than you do. You don't love them. You may really, really like them. You may like having them around, but what you really love this thing here. That's why sin deserves punishment. You can't tell the creator of the universe, of everything, everywhere, that has ever existed, that you love this thing over here, something that he's created as well, more than him. And you see, the thing about hell is, well, you know, it's, it's in there. It's in the Bible. Because if sin is anything that takes the place of God, or sorry, yeah, it's in there. And Jesus talks about, uh, about judgment and hell uh, on a number of occasions. And it's always shaped in the form of a warning. I mean, uh, look at this passage. Can you stick up the torch screen? There it is, yeah. And if your hand, I really love it, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to, hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if you're, this is Jesus speaking by the way, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame with two feet than be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I mean, he's basically saying that you need to make every effort you can not to go to hell. You need to take every effort you can possibly do to deal with your sins because otherwise the reality is that you'll be punished for them. Now, you know, reading this deserves a whole sermon, but uh, I'll, I'll end with a couple of things about uh, that. Firstly, I want to apologize to you. Uh, if you have ever heard from any Christian talking to you about hell with a sense of glee, you know, aha, Look at these horrible sinners on their way to hell. I was in a summer program once, 
with people from America and the Republic and Northern Ireland and each of us had to get together and put on a performance that explained our culture to the other groups, right? And I always remember the, uh, the Northern Irish guys did a great job and they came up and ran the show and in the, in the show they, they sung the song that they made up, right? And one, one line of the song that always stuck with me because of this. Turn or burn, turn or burn, there's a fireball heading straight for you, not me, but you. <laughs> I think you, you seem to recognize what I'm talking about, didn't you? That was new for me, I think. But, uh, now if you've been on the receiving end of something like that, right, that attitude, I apologize. I apologize. Because hell isn't something that should be used to make you feel inferior or less than the person who's talking to you about it. It should make you feel, I'm not, I'm not actually sure how it should make you feel, but it shouldn't make you feel like that. The second thing, we all know instinctively that justice has to be served. You, you can't, I'll just come back to an earlier point, you can't slap the creator of the cosmos in the face and expect, expect to get away with it. That's, that's just not on. We all have this sense of justice, and that comes from God, and it actually finds its greatest expression in the doctrine of hell. Thirdly, this may surprise you, but there is nowhere in the Bible that shows people in hell wanting to get out. Yes, it's true that God sends people to hell. But you see, the thing is, the picture that the Bible paints is that people in hell are getting what they want. Because ultimately, they've spent all their lives not facing up to God. They put other things at the center, and then when death comes, when the curtain is finally pulled back, they still don't want to face up to them. All their lives, they've been saying, I want to do it my way, and when they die, nothing changes. C.S. Lewis says that hell is the greatest monument ever built to God's just, justice and to human freedom. Why human freedom? Because the citizens of hell are totally committed to doing what they want to do. So God says, okay. So you have to store it. But he says, okay. And then lastly, this is the emotional thing, you know. Lastly, most people in our country, everybody's got a problem with hell, don't they? Who likes hell? And actually, I say our country, or both of our countries, because there are many parts of the world where the idea of God punishing people seems legitimate, actually. There's some cultures have no problem with the idea that God is just to send people to hell. But here, we have a problem with it. I mean, like, why, why would he send them to hell? Why wouldn't he just save them all? Uh, why, why does he only have mercy on some people and not all of them? Now, in response to that, those questions, good questions, if you don't wrestle with them, um, you almost should be, I think. But in response to those, people usually use the argument that I did a few minutes ago. God can't override human freedom. And that's true, but it doesn't satisfy, does it? I mean, if he's God, 
do you find a way in? Well, if you were to go and ask them, I think what he would say to you is, you, you got to trust me. I was merciful to everyone. I was able to be merciful to them. I showered my love on him, everyone I was able to shower my love on. And here's the thing, folks. I do trust him. He died and he experienced hell on the cross for me, for you, for all of you. Anyone who does that for us deserves our trust. That's it. No. Um, <clears throat> said a lot of things there but basically Jesus takes sin seriously he doesn't want any of us to go to hell he doesn't want us to be, wants us to be free from ourselves and if any of those things interest you you can talk to me or Krista or Sam or basically anybody who holds your eye in contact for more than 10 seconds and, you know, they want to talk to you you know it's the way church runs but um, it's good thanks very much